Well, it's good again to be uh, with you opening God's Word together. Thankful that Bradford could be here uh, last week with his family. And that week always goes like this when you're with family. It's not exactly a restful vacation, but it was a good vacation. Um, We do appreciate that time. And we didn't get snowed in up north, so we're grateful for that uh, as well. But always good to be back and to open God's Word with you. and, And I look forward to that very much. So I encourage you to turn to the book of Acts this morning. Uh, We will be back in Exodus. It was a year ago that we started Exodus. We're halfway through, so we're going to start, and we'll be back in Exodus again next week. But as we start the new year and uh, go to the table this morning, I thought, uh, I want to go to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses, 42 through 47, um, well, some some supporting uh, references from 1 Corinthians 10. But thinking about what life together in the church should be about, what it should look like. Um, as we go to Acts, just to sort of bring us into the context, Acts is one of those linking books in the Bible. An example, if we were to go to the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua, and you have that links the first five books, the story of the Exodus, God taking His people out of, of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land, well, Joshua links those books to the rest of the Old Testament history in the land. Well, when we get to the New Testament, Acts serves in a similar way where we have the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and then Acts sort of links that ministry to all of the letters that follow to the churches. Well, how do they get to those churches? Where do they come from? Well, Acts helps in, in uh, filling in some of those um, links. Um, really the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. Uh, a, a blueprint for how God's mission goes forward uh, through His church. Spreading of the gospel, the expansion of the church, uh, clearly the work of the Holy Spirit as we read the book of Acts. And those who go about this mission and this work can expect opposition. They can expect challenges uh, in the spreading of the church. That's a major theme in, uh, in Acts. So we're going to look for patterns. We're going to look for actions in the life of the church that help us shape our own understanding of what the church should be about. So I'm going to begin reading that new section in verse 41, and I'll read through verse 47. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord God, we do praise You for the power and the authority of Your Word. As I consider the Apostle John who looked upon the work of Christ and said, He must increase and I must decrease. Lord, in that sense, may You increase in our presence, increase through Your Word as we decrease and come in submission to Your Word this morning. 
Lord, we ask that You would speak faithfully through Your servant, that You would illumine our hearts and be attentive in this way, that You would help us in applying this Word, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. What does paradise look like for you? I mean, take, take the best of all worlds. What comes to mind? Um, you know, certainly we want to take into account different tastes and preferences that God's given to each of us. But what is paradise? Maybe it's that, that log cabin in the mountains. It's quiet, majestic scenes. Um, just, to, just to get away. That's paradise. Maybe you're a beach bum. You're probably living in the wrong state if you're a beach bum. But maybe this is paradise. You know, laying out on, this, on the sand. You've got the surf at your feet and that, that ocean breeze. Your, your favorite beverage in hand. That's paradise. Um, how about downtown big city? Did that, did that top anybody's list of paradise? Maybe not. You're, you're chuckling. So I'm guessing probably not. I mean cultural center, you know, architecture, there's you know, usually a lot more jobs in the city. But that when we think about big city, we typically don't think about those things. We're thinking about the congestion and the driving headaches and, well, the, the, the abuse and poverty and other things that come with the city. Um, we prefer the open spaces, you know, to, to get out into the suburbs and and smaller uh, places. And that's, that's understandable to a large degree um, because with lots of people comes lots of mess. Um, in fact, it's hard. I say it's not even possible in this broken world to be in close proximity with others and invest in others without the risk of pain. Pain of either being hurt or pain of hurting others. But strangely enough, or perhaps not so strangely, from the Bible, God has made us to live together in community with the picture of glory as a city. The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, where His people dwell in in safety and peace. So there's celebration and praise and, and perfect justice. So this heavenly community that we were, were made for, it's, it's, it's pictured, it's modeled here in the life of the church. Not a perfect community, not by any stretch, but it's a community of the redeemed, empowered by Christ. We're worshiping and growing in godliness together as we look forward to a world restored, a paradise in the city of God. So as God grows this this community of worshipers, we're given a glimpse of what life in the body of Christ uh, looks like. And what we've read this morning, these verses aren't just church stuff, not just Sunday morning things. Uh, This describes the life of the church, what we are to be about day in and day out in our response to the gospel. So Luke gives us a model. We're going to look at these means of grace that have been built in to the church, into the life of the church, and I want to I put them in two different categories: um, fellowship and feasting. As we love one another in Christ, we share a life of fellowship and feasting. Uh, Acts chapter two, 
people are responding to the first major sermon in the New Testament. Peter tells them that what they have just seen and heard is the very power of the Holy Spirit and fulfillment of God's Word. Jesus is the Anointed One. He is the Christ who is, that they have now destroyed. And we read in, in 37-41, through 41, we caught the very end of this, but it says many res- people were stricken by this. They responded to this Word and their, their consciences um, said, well, what do we do? And we read that, that thousands, three thousands repenting, placing their trust in Christ, which sounds like a lot of people, and it is a lot of people. Uh, now in a city of about 200,000 of the time, 3,000 would still be a pretty small minority, but God is using His Word. Transform hearts. Dramatic work of the Holy Spirit here. So God is growing His church, something that, that He can do and something that He alone can do. Christianity is... Still, still spreading. He's still doing this. Christianity is spreading even now, quite quickly, in some places around the world. Most, most prominently in Asia and Africa and South America. People are responding in faith. There, there's, there's, there's a tangible difference in the way they go about life. They're baptized. They start living in that new identity as adopted children in the family of God. So it's Christ that now unites them. It's the Word of Christ through the apostles that, that brings them together and deepens their relationship with one another. As I mentioned earlier, the, the activities in verse 42, not just a list of things we do uh, on Sunday or church activities. Okay, these are central to the, the body life of the, of the faithful in, in all contexts. Okay, in the homes where they met. When they went to the temple, they devoted themselves, meaning they were intentional and persistent in meeting together. You know, coming under the instruction of God's Word, praying together, celebrating the, the sacraments. And I hesitated a little bit when I was thinking about how to, you know, to, to talk through this, to use that, that word for fellowship. I'm not sure why I hesitated so much, because that's the word the Bible uses in almost all contexts. Um, but the word, I think, tends to be overused sometimes, certainly over or downplayed in the church. The word we find here to describe fellowship is koinonia. And in that original, it has a very close association with a, well, it means just that, a very close association together, participating together, sharing actively in the body of Christ. So it's different than a local book club or um, you know, a scout troop or something like that, where there are groups that come together who have similar interests, something in common, a certain passion. But koinonia is more than that. Okay, they were all, those who share koinonia are stakeholders together. One of my favorite vocal groups, group that I love listening to, is called the Vocal Majority. It's a group of about 160 men uh, in the Dallas area, uh, men from all walks of life, younger men, older men, and they, uh, they audition and then they commit to this, this group. And I saw a video where they had won their 12th gold medal in the, the Barbershop Harmony Society. And they have special rules in this Harmony Society. You can win the gold only every three years. So it tells you how 
how much history they have uh, as a group. And I really think they are um, as good as it gets when it comes to harmony, this side of heaven, but that's my perspective. Um, but they were interviewing the director and a few of the other guys after they had won this, this uh, medal, and they were talking about their, their passion for vocal music and you know, how, how often they have to practice. They get up and practice you know, multiple times a week. But each one in the group was doing this, from the youngest to the oldest, coming to, committing themselves to these practices. They all had a stake in it. And so afterwards... They said, well, you know, we were singing not so we could wear a medal at the end of the day, but because we wanted to sing next to so-and-so or share the part with, with this guy. They were in it for, for each other. They all had a stake and went into their, um, their success. So there's a desire, an obligation among these new Christians to, to share in what God had given, to share in His provision. Not because they had to or were you know, somehow um, you know, you know, pressure or they wanted to receive some recognition for this. They were bound together. Bound in Christ. They belonged to each other. They were committed stakeholders with one another. Interestingly, there, there seems to be a, a financial aspect in the New Testament when, when this term koinonia is used. Um, not some type of communalism where everyone's property went into a big pot and you know, or certain people you know, distributed as they saw fit. No, this was private property voluntarily selling and distributing to those uh, who had need. Sharing of burdens. It became a natural way of life uh, for those in the early church. Um, fellowship also included time spent together. Time spent around the table sharing a common meal together. I think that's probably a fresh experience for most of us in these last couple of weeks. Time that we shared uh, with family or friends, sitting around the table, sharing stories. Um, I think I counted that in my, my father-in-law's home, the table could be expanded where we could get 14 people around the table, and then we put another table at the end going the other direction so we could get even more. That way we could at least have conversation and you know, laugh so hard that milk comes out your nose or slurping the spaghetti noodles or something like that. You know, those types of things you remember. Why? Because you shared them with other people. Um, you spent that time together, enjoying it together. Um, so the fellowship, the koinonia of the New Testament church, it's a model for our life together. Um, as I, I consider this, you know, as God builds His church, He doesn't he doesn't deal with us as individuals in isolation. Um, we must commit to Him, commit our, our hearts to Him. But our faith journey is not designed to be a me and Jesus experience. It, it's, you know, our journey is to be an us and Jesus experience. And God, God uses and works through community and the community of the redeemed to teach us to encourage us, to discipline us. So New Testament believers saw themselves as a family where they needed one another. That's something that we must consider as well as a church. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, tells the young church that they've been given certain gifts in the building up of the church. When he ends his letter to uh, the Corinthians, first letter, 
And he prays that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be among them. So what, what Paul calls the fellowship of the Spirit in his letters, that coincides with this oneness and togetherness language that Luke uh, uses. So we grow in the image of Christ together. So here's where you know, we, we step on the brake pedal and go, okay, this, this is hard. It's certainly hard for me. Especially when our paradise is you know, somewhere out there, somewhere in the wilderness, where it's quiet and there's no mess, we think. You just to get up in the mountains, away from people. <laughs> and so we're somewhat slow to invest and devote ourselves in the very community that enables us to grow and mature in Christ. So these, these verses should really, they really have to probe our own hearts. I'd say these things generally as a church, but search your own heart towards the church and God's design for the church. You know, do, we, do we view the church just like any other, other club? You know, a place to hang out with some like-minded folks when we have the time? Maybe we've, you know, we've been in the church long enough, we have a pretty good uh, idea of who we're going to hang out with and who we're not going to, that sort of thing. So sometimes we can exist formally as a church, but grow comfortable as a church, sort of divided, a church with, with factions and, and groups. And I, I thank the Lord I, I don't see this as a prominent thing in Trinity Fellowship. We need to be aware of how quickly this can happen in our own hearts. Now, I want to ask you a very personal question. Okay, maybe it's two questions. Um, but I don't think there's any better time to ask this than now at the beginning of a new year as a church. Do I believe that I need the church to mature in Christ? If the answer is no, then please keep listening. The answer is yes, keep listening too, but I've got another question for you. How devoted am I to the health of the body? What evidence is there in my life of a, of a commitment and, and perseverance in the means of grace that God has given? I say I want to grow in Christ. I say I want a, a deeper faith in 2019, but am I affording myself of the means of grace? that God gives to accomplish just that. It must be intentional, committed to the body as an expression of God's commitment to us. appreciate what Professor Dennis Johnson, he says many things on this subject, but it, it cuts me right to the heart. He says, the higher value we place on personal privacy and freedom from commitments, the shallower understanding of koinonia will be. So it's more, it's more than coffee, more than an occasional fellowship lunch or Bible study. certainly includes those things. Very important. But it's much more in our willingness to commit and get involved even in the messy stuff in the lives of others. Really, our need to examine our own heart towards the stuff that God gives to us. God's provision. Do we have a, a compulsion out of Christ's love and, and service to us to help our brothers and sisters? 
You know, I really don't think it's a stretch. Many Christians, most in this room, for myself, the guy standing here, um, that you know, to be content and consider, consider it a priority in life to be economically comfortable. Um, we want to give, we want to help, we know in our minds how important it is, but that's typically after our own needs and our, a particular lifestyle is met. Um, now that, that doesn't mean that you have to live like a pauper in order to honor Christ or to grow in godliness, or somehow live below the poverty line. But it should create this tension with the wealth that we've grown so comfortable with. Are we eager, willing to give? Knowing that it's God, it's it's not me, it's not my employer, it's not this particular line of work. It's God who knows what I need and will provide what I need every day. So Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. So the young church, New Testament church, believed this, they lived it out, um, not without problems certainly, but certainly an encouragement for us. So the church comes together for fellowship, and it comes together to feast. Uh, I mentioned the sharing of common meals uh, together. But they would also gather to share this, they would share the sacrament, a new covenant meal of God's people. And how often the church participated in the sacrament uh, seems to vary in the New Testament. If we go to different places in Acts, it seems that you know, once a week, Acts chapter 20, you might look at for that. Um, so we, do, we don't have a prescription here as to how often we should participate in the sacrament, eat the bread and drink the wine, but we do see a very strong intention to do so. At the center of their fellowship was the feasting of God's Word, and the breaking of bread. And that phrase, breaking of bread, we see it's used in verse 42 and 46. And then I'm convinced there there's a distinction in how this is used. To say the church was breaking bread, or that they are breaking bread together, would simply mean that they're enjoying a common meal, like we've mentioned in fellowship. But to use the article in front of it, to say the church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread... And when that, when that is grouped with a few other terms like teaching and prayer and fellowship, uh, that's unique. Again, this form for, for breaking that, that Luke uses in verse 42, it occurs only two other times in the New Testament, both in connection with the Lord's Supper. So I think we have both the sacrament and common meals in view here. Feasting on God's grace uh, at the table, significant part of their gatherings, of their persistent worship. Why was it so important? Why is it important for us to include this feast as a regular part of our worship? And regularity is once a month uh, right now at Trinity. First Corinthians 10, Paul is warning the church in Corinth that because they are now in Christ, they must avoid pagan practices and even the meals and celebrations that would go along with this idolatrous worship. See, they, they, were, they, they were misguided, they were misdirected. Sort of, they, they would eat the meals of idolatry and then they'd, they'd mix in a little bit of Lord's Supper with it. Paul says, you can't do this. You can't have it both ways. If you have aligned yourself 
with Christ, then you must leave the old feasts and come to the new one. Come to the new covenant meal. This is the feast of the redeemed. It's here at this feast that we see the redeeming work of Christ pictured, applied by the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that was optional then. Not just a good idea. Participation in the body life of Christ. His body. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So in this feast, we are are pledging that we belong to Christ. Christ belongs to us. That we belong to one another in the church. And all the, the blessings, all the benefits of what Christ has accomplished belong to us. And that, that's why this meal must be received by faith. If you and I are to have any benefit from the sacrament on a continual basis, we must believe its significance. In our feasting, we confess our need for the Savior. One who intercedes for us. That's active participation where a real change is taking place with the power of the Holy Spirit as we eat and drink together. My brother and I went to visit my grandfather in Michigan last week, last Friday morning, and we knew the visit would be hard. It wasn't something we were overly excited about. Grandpa now is in advanced stage of dementia, Alzheimer's, so we knew he, um, so we would we would listen and sort of make conversation, um, and he uh, you know would remember some things without really saying names, and um, but then we saw he had a little banner with a portion of a Christmas hymn on it, so we sang "Joy to the World" together and we prayed with with Grandpa. But when Darren and I left, he said, you know this that was a really good visit. We weren't really looking forward to it. We knew it would be hard to sit with Grandpa, but it allows us in this time where we, really a time of grief, as we slowly, over a long period of time, are saying farewell to our grandfather. But, but just going for that visit, it, I mean, it changed us. It allowed us to, um, you know, it just sort of shaped our, our journey together as a family, just through an hour and a half visit. When we participate in this feast, it, it changes us. It shapes our attitudes, shapes our actions toward Christ, towards each other. And we certainly remember what Christ has done when at the table. That, that's what's written right here. But Jesus commands, do this in remembrance of me. But that remembrance means something for us in this very moment, right now. It changes us. It deepens our faith. So do you value this feast that way? We must continue to devote ourselves, avail ourselves of this grace that the Lord has given us at the table. So we've been made to share life together, to live in community, participate in the life of Christ. You know, paradise is on the horizon. It's a great and glorious city. Peace, unity, praise, 
We look forward to that and we, you know, you know, the rest of the world just gets a glimpse of it right here. And the fellowship, the feasting of God's people. I love this meal. I'm looking forward to this meal. I pray you've come this morning looking forward to feast upon your Savior, to feast with your brothers and sisters. So let's feast together in the presence of our God. Lord God, we do thank you that you feed us through your word, that we have this foundation and model for what life looks like in the church, to come under the teaching of your word, to share fellowship together, to do what we're doing in this moment in talking to you, our creator and king, and to go to this table to break bread together. Lord, feed us now. Nourish our faith. Strengthen our love for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.